Hi, I'm Stuart McLeod, CEO and co-founder of Carbon. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, the show where I go behind the scenes with the world's top accounting leaders. Today I'm joined by Edward Chan, who started Chan and Naylor from his kitchen table and grew it to 10 offices around Australia with 160 staff and 15,000 clients. He then co-founded Wise Mentoring, which is now in 47 countries, connecting over 125,000 accountants. Ed contributes at a board and strategic level to many accounting firms, helping them improve their efficiencies and effectiveness and run better businesses, while also sitting on various steering committees at a higher education level to help shape the education outcomes of accounting students. It is my pleasure to welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast, Ed Chan. Good morning, Ed. Welcome to the Accounting Leaders Podcast. <laughs> Thank you for having me, Stuart. I'm, I'm really, really happy to be here. This is probably, I think, maybe my most famous guest oh. so far, Ed. <laughs> you know, like you're a, a, a talent, a, a man of many talents and uh, extremely well-known, particularly in the Australian and now even more globally with your wise mentoring, right? And, and uh, it must be very satisfying for you. Yes, it's a, a way of giving back. The industry's been very good to me and I've done very well out of it and um, it's very satisfying to spend the rest of my time here on this planet to give back and to help others who can um, who can achieve the same. It's not that hard, really. It's, it's just knowing how to do it. We focus a lot on what to do, but not many people show us how to do it. That's the secret. Now, uh, you founded Wise Mentoring with another great friend of mine, Jamie Johns, and uh, we I remember meeting Jamie out at uh, Ballarat, right, and yeah, way back in the pay cycle days, we had to go and beg and borrow and do anything we could to get a customer. So I drove up on a freezing cold morning. It was always freezing cold in Ballarat. So freezing cold yes. morning, <laughs> went and saw him and, <laughs> and uh, you know, he, he had plans for world domination and, and, he, uh, and he executed pretty well. <laughs> yes, I remember um, I'd got my accounting practice working pretty well and, and I was working and there was about nine offices at the time, I think, uh, around Australia. And um, Jamie called me up and asked me if, if I could help him. And, and I, uh, quite a few firms had asked me at that point, and I said yes. And I guess the difference between Jamie and, and the rest was that Jamie implemented very, very quickly. And uh, within about a year, I suppose, or even less than that, he'd pretty much implemented uh, most things. And, uh, you know, his business started to change and, uh, and today he's no longer working in it, just like myself. And it's, uh, it pays us both a passive income. And uh, he said to me, um, this really works and why don't we share this with the rest of the community? And, um, but my problem was that I'm not very good with technology and I'm not very good with documenting things. So, <laughs> but he's very, very good at it. And, you know, I talk about bringing complementary skills together when you build a business and not the same skills. And he really complimented me, like he, he can document and um, he ran the systems and, you know, every week we'd get together and uh, got everything out of my head and put it down into our WISE program. And then um, a third gentleman joined us, which is uh, Brenton Ward, and he provided the, the marketing in the back office. And so it was a great team that we put together. That's so important. You know, I can't stress that enough, Getting bringing complementary skills together rather than same skills. 
Well, let's step back a bit, Ed. Let's go right back to the start. Where did you grow up and which college, et cetera, et cetera? <laughs> sure. I was uh, born in uh, Papua New Guinea, actually, of all places. Second generation there. Uh, mum and dad were born there as well. Actually, dad was born there. My mum came out to Australia when she was very young, about nine years old. And mum and dad ended up in New Guinea with a business. And I was born there and came down to Sydney for boarding school. So I went to uh, St. Joseph's College, which is uh, called Joey's. So I stayed, after my high school, I stayed and completed my degree and I never went back. Papua New Guinea uh, got their independence in 1975. And dad um, said that it was probably safer if I stayed down here. So I did. And then, um, you know, I finished my degree and did the usual thing, went and got a job, got my experience and then um, started just doing tax returns for family and friends at home. I remembered mum and dad retired and came down to Sydney and uh, I was living with them and, you know, I was using their kitchen table to um, prepare tax returns. And so it grew from there and then um, just from word of mouth and it just got bigger and bigger and then I then went out. Do you and, still have the kitchen table, like it's on, like in a museum <laughs> somewhere, like they do it into it? <laughs> yeah, that's a good idea, Stuart. <laughs> you, can, you can charge $3 for a selfie with the table. <laughs> uh, yes, it's funny looking back on it now. Dad used to come out and say, what are you doing? And I said, I'd say, oh, just trying to get my experience up. So I was doing overtime for the firm I was working with, but I wasn't getting paid for it because I was just trying to get experience as quickly as I could. So I used to do all this extra work and um, just to try and get that experience level so I could come out on my own and, uh, you know, begin running my own business. Because that's all I wanted to do from a, a small child. I guess my history, my parents and grandparents, they're all all had their own business, so that's really what I wanted to do. It didn't really need to be an accounting business. I didn't know what what business it would, you know, I wanted to do, but it just needed to have my own business. So I thought getting experience was a fast track way of getting there, and so I did. I put the hours in to to get experience, and then I started getting people asking me to do work, and and then I ended up, you know, hiring an office. It was getting too big. Mum and Dad was getting a Kept getting upset with me. <laughs> getting a bit sick of you. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I met David Naylor, my business partner in the, in the firm that I worked with, and we got along really well. And you know, as young, enthusiastic, and energetic people, we said we could do this better. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we know. <laughs> and, we know uh, all. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then, little did we know, we we were great accountants, but we weren't. We didn't know how to run a business. And within a few years, I was growing by at least 30% a year on average and um, got to a point where I was working 100 hours a week and I didn't have a life. I'd, I was married by then. You know, I'd work six, seven days a week and uh, didn't have a life. Um, so this business that I'd created that was supposed to ta- uh, give me life was actually taking a life from me. And I got to a crossroads and I thought, well, what do I do? Do I sell it, which I was tempted to do, or do I sell off the small clients and just look after the big clients? Do I bring in another partner? But all those things, looking back on it now, were were just symptoms and not the problem. And unless I treated the problem and not the symptom, I was going to I was going to repeat it. So if I so if I sold it, change what I did, and change industries, then if I don't change how I did it, 
then within a few years, I would have replicated all the problems I had in the first industry and in the second industry, and I'd, and, and I'd look to sell it again. And you see that with a lot of the clients that we have, they chase the next shiny thing and they think that it's the way to do it is to, it's easier on the other side or, you know, there's a, there's a better way. But a book that really helped me was Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. He said that the gold is in your own backyard, just look for it. But that really helped me focus on, you know, what I should be doing. And then uh, a couple of other books that helped a lot was um, Dr. Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And, and Michael Gerber's um, E-Myth was another one that helped a lot. So with these three books, I just changed my whole life. I guess what I did was to implement, just implement the principles that were in there. And, um, you know, you can have a lot of ideas, but if you don't implement them, then nothing happens. But it's better actually to have less ideas and more implementation than to have more ideas and less implementation. So I just implemented the hell out of those three books and it's completely changed my life and um, here I am today, yes. Let's dig into that a bit. So what are the, you know, what were the aspects that you, impl- I mean, we talk about implementation and what we do and, and, and how we do it. Give us some examples. Let's get into it and, and say, okay, well, I, I was working 100 hours a week. My wife was about to divorce me. I barely knew her because I was at work the whole time. How did you go about, you know, you read these books. How did we go about changing and what was the first couple of steps that you took, do you reckon? Sure. You always hear these terms like work on your business, not in your business. I actually really put in things to do that. But the problem was, you know, I was working 100 hours a week. Where where would I was going to – where did you find the extra time? And um, what I understood from Dr. Stephen Covey was that very successful people worked, and he broke it down into four quadrants. He broke it down into um, the activities that you do in, in both business and life fell into these four quadrants and I'll just cover the first two and ignore the, the third and the fourth because they're not important, but they fall into categories of important and urgent. And he called that quadrant one and quadrant two was important, but not urgent. And everything that I did, I just put it into those four quadrants and got rid of quadrant three and four, which are irrelevant. And I just focus on quadrant two, which are important, but not urgent. Things like training your staff, because up to that point, you know, my attitude was, if you want to do it right, just got to do it yourself. Or if I spent all that, by the time I trained that person, I could have just done it myself. So, yeah, so my thinking was in quadrant one, which is putting the fire out. And I was just putting fires out, and but I was never, I, I never got into quadrant two, which is preventative things. So I put things in place to prevent the next fire from starting. So that was the first thing. Now, how did I do that? I, I just had to find some time, whether it was on the Sunday or a public holiday, you know, two o'clock in the morning. For example, I was worried that when the staff did the work, they would make mistakes. So I prepared a checklist and I did that two o'clock in the morning and I spent, you know, two hours putting this checklist together. And then uh, it was easier then to train staff and then they didn't make the same mistakes that they used to. So that was one example of working in quad two which was important but not urgent. And um, another one was educating the clients. So rather than just wait for the work to come in and um, and then react to the client's uh, complaints or most complaints are just miscommunication between two parties. So we started a program of educating the clients. So every time we received their work in, 
we would send out a acknowledgement letter explaining how how we worked here, and eventually they started working the way we liked to do it, rather than us reacting to the way they liked to do it. So we started to manage their expectations rather than letting them manage us. And um, I often use this example: if you let your clients manage you, they'll drag you into their nightmare. Yeah. Because often people <laughs> you, are you're perfectly happy in your own nightmare, let alone yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I had a big enough nightmare myself, yeah. let alone uh, you know adding to it. And then I realised that the amount of traffic that's comes through an organ uh, an accounting business is what kills it. And you've got to be able to manage that traffic. And the traffic is broken into two parts. It's broken into communication traffic, like emails, phone calls, meetings, those kind of things, and uh, production traffic, you know, actually getting the work done. And then I also realized that not everybody, everybody's skills are different. So the person who likes and who are very good at communication, they're a people person, and there are others who are not people persons and they're, they're more production people. They just like to sit. They don't like to talk to people. They just like to sit there and do the work. And uh, often I hear firms say they get frustrated because their staff won't do this or won't do that or they won't phone the client to talk to them. They send an email and they won't ask for sales, you know, because you're putting the person in the wrong position. So it's a bit like playing a game of um, soccer or football. Everybody's got a position, and um, the fastest person should go on a wing. And the person who's got the best reflexes should, should be the goalie. Now, if you play those two people out of position, not only aren't you going to get the result, which is winning the game, but you're going to have those people leave because they're not happy, because they're not in their flow, so to speak. So we identified that and made sure that the senior client managers are the ones that were that like people, that like to talk, that like to communicate. And they were the ones that uh, liaised, they were the front people, if you like, that liaised with all the clients. And then the production people don't talk to the clients. They, they just sit there and they just do production. And what happened was when you played people in their flow, they're much happier, they're much more productive, they stayed longer, and you get this synergy of one plus one is five. So the productivity out of that team was far, far greater than the sum of its parts. So that was a, a, an important revelation, and that started to work. And that's how you scaled, because I, I hit a ceiling, but I couldn't grow it any further because it, there wasn't enough hours in a day because I was trying to do everything myself, and uh, it just doesn't work. So um, that was some of the things that I did to, to scale the business. What year did you open your first Chan Nailer up? office then? That's a good question. Um, I suppose I, I joined up with David officially around June, July 1990. I was out of control by the time I was 1994, about three or four years into it. And then I started, I spent a year re-engineering the whole place. And then I went from working 100 hours down to 20 hours a week. I then got asked by the Institute of Chartered Accountants to do some speeches or to talk to their members about what I'd done. So I did that as a bit of fun. And then I had quite a few people come up afterwards and say, I'd like to do that too. The first one was we started in Parramatta in Sydney here. And then um, we started a second practice in Pimble. And that was two thousand around 2003. 2004. So that was the first office. And then it sort of grew from there. 
And without, did you sort of franchise the model or, or no? It was all, it was all under, I mean, I know it was all under the Chan and Noble name, but, but was it, did they become partners of their own book or how did you sort of set it up? What was the model? Well, there were several ways that we could have done it, but I, I've always believed that partnerships don't work. The reason why partnerships don't work, and I, I'm not talking about the legal structure, I'm more talking about the management structure. And perhaps if I explain that first and then I'll explain what we did. The reason why the traditional partnerships don't work, in my view, is that once someone becomes a partner, they want to get involved with everything. So all of a sudden, like a you know a snap of a, your finger, or a person who was good at certain th- a particular thing, who becomes a partner is now suddenly good at everything, and he wants to be involved with everything when often he or she is not. Take for example marketing. All right, so. Not everybody's a marketer. Let's talk about being a business person. Not everybody's a business person, and some of us are accountants, and we should stay in our flow. But when they become partners, they become business marketing experts and you know everything, and they want to say in everything. And it doesn't work because you're trying to be a, a generalist and you become good at – you want to stick your nose into things that you're not very good at, and that creates lots of problems. So what I believed in was to run it as a corporation, and a corporation separates out your occupation or your skill set from the ownership. So you're a shareholder, but you get paid a dividend based on the profits of the business, but then you fill a role in the organization that's suitable to your skill set. Just imagine like just like a normal business, right? Just like a normal business, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Somehow accountants have confused the the way nor, you know, normal businesses have run for centuries and, and called it a partnership. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> ironically. And uh, I guess the model that a lot of accountants have embraced is that in the spirit of finding, mining, and grinding – if you're a finder, you'll get invited in to be a partner. But if you're a, a miner or a grinder, you won't. It's not as likely that you'd, you'd get invited in. So they had a they created a business model that that relied on what I call butterfly catchers or hunters. And the problem with that model, of course, is when the butterfly catcher leaves, then that's the end of your growth. And I didn't think that was very good because being people dependent rather than systems dependent, had was problematic. I believed in creating a garden that attracts butterflies. And the garden you own, you don't own the people. So it's always based on systems-based, and the business has to be managed from bottom up and not from top down. And um, because partnerships are, are managed from top down, so there's a limitation as to how, much, how large you can grow that if you're managing it from top down. But management from bottom up, it's highly scalable. You know, it's much better. So things like, you know, timesheets are very important because you've got to be able to measure. You can only manage what you can measure. So you need to measure productivity and and so forth. Now, if you're running a little practice, you probably don't need timesheets because, you know, you're across everything and you're, you've got the finger on the pulse and you know the person sitting next to you is, is productive or not productive. But when you get up to 160 staff like like I had right across Australia, then you can't rely on you being there. So you need to have a system that allows you to have your finger on the pulse, so to speak, because the larger you get, the further you are away from the, the pulse of your organisation, not only 
the clients, but also your staff. So, you know, like I hadn't met most of the staff because they were right around Australia, and yet I needed to be able to know whether they're happy or unhappy or if there's a problem and, and so forth. So we ran surveys and net promoter scores for both uh, clients and staff. So at any point in time, I knew the health of my business, which is basically your your people, your clients, your numbers, those kind of things. And unless you knew those numbers, you weren't in control. Now, control is a funny thing. Um, I'd rather be in control without being controlling is a saying that I use. And the numbers allows me to be in control without being controlling. It's the levers. You, you, you just, oh, it's the, uh, it's the indicators of the business, right? Like as you said, you, where are your employees up to? Where, how happy are the customers? How sad are the customers? Are they likely to leave? Are you profitable? Are you not profitable? Are you still a big believer in timesheets? Yes, hundred percent. For two reasons: one, based on a system of management from bottom up, not from top down, then they manage themselves. So the timesheets allows me to know whether, you know, they're productive because that's a very good indicator whether they're productive or not. And it also allows me to measure whether we're being inefficient and writing time off and helps me identify where the problem is, if there is a problem, so that we can go in and fix it. Without timesheets, you don't know if there's a problem, if there's leakage in the organization you don't know where it's leaking, and then it becomes input rather than output. If you manage your business based on input, it's very problematic. You shouldn't manage your business based on output because input are things like, I work really hard, but what's the definition of working really hard? Well, I'm working seven days a week. Rather, you work less and be more productive. So I'd rather you – so it's a bit like the salesman who says – oh, I work really hard, I work seven days a week, but I haven't sold anything. For a salesman, the selling is actually output, and that's what you should be measured on, not on input, not on how many hours you put in, but on the, on the sales that he's, he or she has actually made. So for an accounting firm, it should be measured on output, your productivity, that what you put down in your timesheets, not, what, not the effort that you put in. So it's a very important tool if you want to grow your business. Now, obviously, if you don't want to grow your business and you just want a job, you can just, you know, keep an eye on everybody and just you'll be on top of everything because you're there every day. But I didn't want to be a prisoner of my business because that's what tends to happen is you become a a prisoner and you have to be there to watch over everything, whereas I wanted to have more choices in my life. And in order to have more choices in my life, I had to build systems so that the business ran by itself. And then that gave me a lot of choice. So I can still choose to work in it if I wanted to, or I can choose to not work in it like I chose to. And then I decided to build you know, other offices. But it gave me a lot of choices. And that was the, the main point of uh, doing it. What's perhaps the, the biggest couple of lessons that you've learned? Top one or two lessons over the years? Yeah, it's all to do with people. <laughs> That's the lesson. It's all about people. <laughs> <laughs> Surprisingly, <laughs> yes, it's a, it's no surprise, I think, that um, it's all about people. You know, we all grew up, if you like, um, Stuart, out of university, into a job. We grew up as grinders, or we were taught to be grinders. And then we're put to being a manager, a minder, and nobody taught us how to do that. 
and uh, a minding job and a grinding job are two different jobs altogether. And just because you succeeded as a grinder, you may, may not necessarily succeed as a minder. And um, the biggest lesson is to help those who want to become a manager to progress to being a manager. And if I can do that, then I can scale and leverage because it is it is in the managing of people that will determine your success in terms of growth and um, scalability. So that's a big one. The other one, again, it's a, around people and to make sure that, you know, the client managers that we're appointing have really good people skills. And unfortunately, um, or fortunately, depending on which way you look at it, uh, most people who did an accounting degree are more grinders than they are finders. So, you know, probably around 80-20. So 80% are more grinders than they are minders. Otherwise, they would have taken up a marketing degree or something, but they chose an accounting degree. So the the finders out there are or the minders are, are very hard to find. They're very there's not many of them. So the ability to recognize which ones they are and to nurture them and to lead. I think that's the the final bit. If you don't lead, you can have the best people in the world and you can have the best systems in the world, but it'll it'll go pear shape if you don't lead. So you need to lead as well. So that's the the, the final point, I guess. It's um, managing people and, and leadership. It's important. And so we got to the the second office, and that must have gone well in sort of early two thousands. What did you sort of just you know duplicate that model into into other offices? And yeah, I think you ended up with ten in total. Yeah, yeah. So what was that sort of process? You know, sort of it's fine. Okay, well, we got one office now. We have got a second. Well, you know, two is um, ten is a, is like three children and more is more than three times as hard as one, right? So so I assume it's the same yes. kind of <laughs> Yes. That's right. <laughs> yes. The interstate ones were very hard. But again it all comes down to the same thing. It all it's all people. If you had the right we had a sorry, I didn't answer your earlier question was which model it was. So we, we ended up running it as a joint venture partnership model. It's a corporation, but you know, they were the CEO of their organization, if you like. They got paid a wage and they also were shareholders, including myself. I was also a shareholder. And, um, and my contribution, I guess, was a, the marketing and the brand. So we used our brand and our marketing because in the spirit of creating a garden that attracts butterflies, so that the people that we hired were more minders and grinders or the joint venture partners were, my, were more minders. They didn't have to be a butterfly catcher or a finder. They just needed to manage their team because it's very hard to find all the skills in the one person. You know, the mining, the grinding and the finding is very difficult to find that. So the people that joined us were more minders than they were finders. And we were able to create a garden that attracted butterfly using the marketing and the brand of Chan and Naylor to do that. So we were generating quite a lot of leads for all the offices around Australia. And then they um, implemented the, the deep and narrow teams that I'd, had, I'd set up. And in the main, it worked pretty well. But looking back on it, I guess the, the biggest challenge was, you know, again, it was the people. And if you get the wrong joint venture partner in place, they might be culturally misaligned because they had to be a little bit what I call not entrepreneurial, but more intrapreneurial. 
they want to work for themselves, but they want to work in a team rather than being totally entrepreneurial, which means that they are happy just to be on their own and to do things their own way. If someone was very entrepreneurial, they, they wouldn't work in a group like ours, nor would they work in a franchise. What was the biggest success and what was the greatest catastrophe? You don't have to name names, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, obviously, it's a matching of minds and a matching of um, skills. And when it doesn't work, we had to part companies. And we parted companies amicably for, with all of them. There's not one that we parted companies with that wasn't amicable. And were those failures mostly financial or just disagreement on path forward? <laughs> yes. It's, it's just that they were without naming anybody, they were more accountants than they were uh, business people. Yeah, they should just be happy being an employee and go and do that. <laughs> Correct. All working for themselves, not working in a group and being part of a group and having shareholders in their business. Some people don't like working as a corporation. They just prefer to be a sole trader and to work for themselves. And that was fine. There was no, you know, we had no issues with that. Sometimes it took a little bit longer to find that out, but the people that were left were fitted in. Even though your your modesty is appreciated and, and you suggested that perhaps you're not the most technologically adept man in the world, but um, what do you think over those, what are we, 30-odd years of accounting, what was the greatest technological change or, or adaptation that, that you saw in that time? Oh, look, it's just changed so much. And if I can if I can explain it in numbers, that might uh, – um, with technology, it's just changed the accounting world so much. Now, I, I'll, I'll go back. You'll, you'll know how old I am when I tell you this. We used to do <laughs> – we used to do accounts on spreadsheets, okay? So I oh, used I thought to, you were going to say the tea ledger on the, in your book. <laughs> uh, I'm not, not far from that, you know. Yeah. So um, You would have been a Lotus 1-2-3 man, wouldn't you? No, even before no? that. It was just a big spreadsheet on the on your desk. Yeah, you'd have opening balances on one side and you put your bank transactions through on the next column and then you'd have your closing balance or your trial balance and then you use from there a P&L and a balance sheet and then, you know, your tax returns. At that point, we needed around 15 accountants per million dollars in fees. So I'll just use numbers so that it makes sense. And then uh, desktop accounting came in, like Myob, and that moved it down to about nine accountants per million in fees. And in the meantime, a lot of the secretaries, we used to have one secretary or typist or whatever you want to call it, per two to three accountants. So we would do all the work. They would type up all the, the financials and the tax returns. We used to need one per two to three accountants. And of course, they actually disappeared with Word and all the software that came through. And we have one secretary now that does everything for three and a half million dollars in fees. And then the accountants then, once Myob came in, then it dropped down to about nine accountants per million in fees. And then when cloud accounting came in, like zero and so forth, that dropped it down to about four to five, about four accountants per million in fees. And it will continue to drop as artificial intelligence gets adopted uh, more and more because it's already in. So it will just automatically feed items into their correct categories. And then you would just need one accountant to check it to make sure that it's all correct because you can't completely depend on on uh, technology. 
So the numbers will fall from there, from four per million in fees down even further. But the profitability has always been the same. So when we used to uh, have 15 accountants per million in fees, our EBITDAs were still around 25 to 35% after partner salaries. And today, that's what they're sitting at as well. So surprisingly, the technology has made it more efficient, reduced the costs, and made it a lot more scalable in terms of people. That's going to continue on. And I don't know where it will end, but you wouldn't always need an accountant. Whenever a country needs to have taxes, you'll always need a tax accountant because one thing's for sure, taxes always change. And I'm I'm a big proponent of compliance, tax compliance in particular. And there's a huge need for that because uh, tax is so complicated and uh, the average person out there needs you know, someone like us to help them interpret the law and to to hold their hands through the maze. And uh, every time there's a change, uh, whether it's a JobKeeper change, whether it's a superannuation change, it's changing all the time. They'll need accountants. So, you know, for those who feel that we were told in the 90s that compliance was dying and we should be doing something else, well, that's not true. I mean, when I was at university trying to choose my career path, they were telling me then that computers were just coming in at that point. And they were saying to me, don't do accounting because you won't have a job. The computers would do all the work and there won't be a single paper on your desk, they said. And, you know, like like 40 years later, I'm still waiting for that to happen. And of course, computers created a whole new industry and whole new jobs. So it's evolving constantly and it's an evolution and we should embrace it and go with it and take the benefits that are there and and change with it. We need to change. We need to constantly change. And uh, if you don't change, it's, it's a bit like the typist who refused the word to use Word but wanted to stick to her typewriter. Right? So you'll, you'll do yourself out of a job if you do that. And there's less and less grinding required in our industry. So that for those accountants who just want to do, continue to do the grinding, well, it's not going to be there. So you have to be more of a manager, a minding and finding and develop those skills because it's, it's, we're in the people business and people buy from people and the back office can get things done. But the most valuable people are the people with the relationships. And if you're looking at your own career, you need to understand that that's the future and you need to develop that side of your career. Well, let's keep going there. We're, you know, we're, we've sort of explored a little bit about what you think that the future holds is, is going to continue to sort of the computers are going to take away more of the the grinding and and the perhaps a little bit of compliance, but um, do more of the work that used to be done by accountants. And accountants, I assume you're of the the school that accountants you know need to move up the value chain and provide value back into their clients. And I think in our in our journey, what we see most often is, is accountants just love going on, being on that journey with their clients and, and helping them and adding value and creating value themselves as well, right? Yes, that's right. And the question really is, is in that value proposition, you either have to be a generalist or you have to be a specialist. The literature is all there. The studies are all The most successful firms are ones that specialize. So you need to specialize in particular areas. and try to to not generalize 
and that's a message that's loud and clear. We, we at Shannon Naylor specialise in property and uh, Jamie Johns specialise in hospitality. So, you know, there's a lot of specialties out there. Pick something that you're passionate about and that you know a lot about and become an expert in a particular vertical market because that gets you the most traction coming back the other way. Yeah. And it also helps in the office, you know, you, you, you don't have to context switch as much. You, you're more familiar. You can pattern match easier. You can benchmark. You can client network effects improve. And Yeah. It's, yeah, and the training is so much easier for your staff because it's, it's like if you're a generalist, the, the amount of tax changes there are just – it's just impossible to keep up with. And on your own, let alone trying to get 160 people, you know, keeping up to date with it as well. So that's a really big challenge. So there are there are lots of uh, reasons to specialise. And also now that the increase in number of, you know, the amount of software out there that, that your clients use just exponentially increases. And so if, if you're a generalist, it's the impact is far greater, right? Yes, Absolutely. Absolutely. There's just so much, you know, even Maya on its own, there's so many versions of it, you know, like <laughs> some, some of the clients. Do they still you know, send faxes at the end of the year? <laughs> yeah, that's right. And uh, their floppy disks, they send their floppy disks in. Oh, you know, do they? So. Good, good. They must have run out. But now, where do you put them? Where do we- <laughs> yes. So you're faced with all of these and these things. And, you know, if you're faced with a client who brings in a shoebox of receipts, then you've got to be able to manage that expectation and that relationship. And, um, you know, the people side of it is so important. And we're not taught that side of things when we went to uni. We were just taught how to do the work and managing people's expectations and managing clients and managing staff. We weren't taught how to do that. You know, we, we just fumbled our way through it like I did and uh, made a lot of mistakes. So I'll give you an example. Um, when I was younger, I changed jobs quite a bit and back then you know we used to find a job and you stay there for a very long time but I was really unhappy so I moved from job to job thinking there was something wrong with the job and I was changing and then I got to a point where I thought there was something wrong with me (laughs) but the lack of leadership and I obviously won't mention any names but I'm not a grinder I'm more of a minder finder now, if my boss back then, when I came out of uni, understood the grinding, mining, and finding concept and understood the deep and narrow teams and you need to separate out your traffic to different people and play them in their flow, he would have said to me, Ed, look, I know you're unhappy at the moment because you're doing the grinding work and you're not really a grinder. You're more of a manager. But you've got to do the hard yakka. You've got to do your apprenticeship. You've got to get through that so that you you can sell the sizzle. Not Because in order to sell the sizzle, you need to know how to make the sausage. But you've got to do the hard work to know how to make the sausage. And then I would have understood and I wouldn't have changed. I would have just stayed where I was and then just persevered. Because as soon as I got enough experience and I became a manager, then I was really happy and I stayed a long time. And if I had the leadership, my first the mentorship and the leadership, then he would have kept my services and put me into a client manager role where I just got in, you know, I'm a mind to find a kind of a person. I, you know, my portfolio grew by at least 30% a year every year, just from word of mouth, because I had that ability to communicate with the clients. And, you know, they used to refer lots and lots of people to me. And, uh, you know, I had new clients coming to me saying to me, 
my friend said, you're such a, an amazing accountant that uh, I just had to come over and see what the fuss was about. There's nothing wrong with my accountant, but I just had to come over and see what the fuss was all about. And I was getting, you know, feedback like that. And so I knew I was the way I was doing it was the right way. But when I was grinding, I was just in the wrong seat. And that's why I was unhappy. No, that makes sense. Let's um, let's change gears a little bit. You've got all this time on your hands, Ed. You're a, yes. <laughs> you know, you built this amazing business. You you uh, it, it pays your passive income. What do you spend? You know, hopefully post touchwood, post COVID world. What interests you? What are the uh, what are the fascinations of Ed Chan? <laughs> yes, well, I together with Jamie and Brenton, we we started Wise Mentoring. So it's now in forty seven countries. And there's 120 odd thousand accountants that's communicating with us and in different levels. And that's going to continue to grow. So I, I spend my time in quad two, which is training, training and uh, coaching our team, our people in our team. And I guess I, I got to a stage where I actually um, sold out from the other nine offices now. So they're no longer Chan and Naylor. We've only got one office left, which is in Pimble. That only happened recently, a few months ago. So I decided to take it a little bit easier, do a bit more focus on my health, doing a lot of bike riding, just come back from a, a two-week um, bike tour where we rode 560 kilometers on the on a push bike. So just focusing more on my health and um, just basically um, – enjoying life my wife and i planning to go overseas a a lot more and just to simplify things part of reason was you know if something happened to me then we had nine offices out there which uh, my wife didn't know anything about so yeah she she didn't want to she didn't want to be managing 150 staff (laughs) that's right (laughs) all one day (laughs) that's an interesting all hands isn't it (laughs) yes so just simplifying life a little bit focusing on on the health i might i've got a book in my head i've written several books already i've got another book in my head that i like to do and uh yeah i'm pretty busy um Stuart. it's uh it's good it's very good. And where was your bike to? Where where was that? Oh, that was down south. Uh, well, northern Victoria, actually, around Beechworth and that area, Bright. The lovely, beautiful bike riding area. So we we just did some tours around there, which uh, with a group of people. So it was lovely. Starting to return to a bit of normality, yeah. Yes. Get out and about. <laughs> yep. <laughs> there's, there's, I've never done one of the, um, you know, the bike and wine tours, but uh, I always sort of fantasise as I get into my later years. I reckon that's a pretty good way to spend a couple of weeks. Is you, you ride, yes. you, <laughs> you ride to the from winery to winery and do all of that. I reckon in in Italy or something that looks all right. <laughs> yes, well, that's that's exactly what we did oh, down wow. in, down so where cool. we were. Yeah. yeah, so it was just from winery to winery. You'd have lunch, and then um, you know you've got an accommodation for for the night, and then you. Right off to the next winery the next morning for lunch. Yeah, yeah. Depending on your hangover, how quick you the, um, <laughs> a couple of years ago we did pre-COVID we did do a um, a tour in the French Alps, and uh, that was that was a hard week. That was there was no wine that week. <laughs> that was, you know, on on we'd, we'd, each day we'd sort of pick a different well, with the tour pick. You know, they had it all planned out. It's all very professional. You get sags. And, sagged and and everything but um it was amazing riding up some of those 
you know, thin French roads, but the tour goes up and the, is, the names are still written on, on the road and, and you you can just imagine the, the, uh, well, you need to imagine the crowd, you know, so close to you because otherwise you can't get up those steep hills. It's crazy what they do. It's amazing. <laughs> yes. Yes. Now I'm, I'm planning to do a, a lot more of it and around the world, uh, not just in Australia, but yeah, looking forward to all that. Yes. There's plenty of hills here in the, in the Lake Tahoe region. Ed, bring your mountain bike <laughs> and we'll, we'll get you out and about. <laughs> <laughs> I'll hold you to that. <laughs> yeah, no, it's fun. It's super uh, fun. It's, yes. Up and down the, um, the ski hills in, in summer are often turning to mountain biking as a great, uh, well, it's not a great money spinner, but it's it's at least keeping some revenue ticking over and and multi use their their facilities and everything. And what's next for Wise Mentoring? Is ja- is Jamie uh, chomping at the bit to grow that into one hundred and fifty <laughs> countries? Is he got it got it Afghanistan, uh, you know, Uzbekistan or something in mind to to go and open an office? We're developing more products for it, so um, we've. Develop wise talent, which helps accounting firm recruit. And there's a process we we go through because we've got to identify grinders, miners, and finders. The the test that a grinder does is different to the test that a miner does. And uh, so we we recruit specific for the deep and narrow team, the ideal team structure that we set up for each accounting firm. They're talking about another product the other day, and um, they're going to develop that. So it's going to be um, very, very busy just adding more value to the existing membership and uh, adding more products. And, and it's all to do with, you know, giving, developing tools to help the accounting firms run their business with a lot more efficiency. So it's working smarter, not harder. Yeah, a lot more peace of mind, right? It's, yeah, it's less stress, more efficiency, more effective, helping, more co- helping clients on that journey. Yes. So whether it's... Um, there's over 200 pieces of uh, technology, um, tools, that kind of stuff in the Wise Vault already from a capacity planner. So, you know, how do you know how to when to hire the next person to, you know, policies to, you know, the Wise Hub is a um, software that you, you put all your videos, your training videos and, you know, all that into – to be a, an area where everybody can come to to get rather than in being in all sorts of different areas. From that to um, leadership training programs we're developing. So, yeah, it's very, very busy. Well, Ed, Chan, congratulations on all your success over the uh, over your career and, and you should be just so proud of your effect and, and input and just the way that Chan and Naylor was successful, but also now with Wise Mentoring, being able to influence the industry in such positive ways and being so humble about it, as well as being so intelligent and brilliant at it. You know, you should be so proud and I'm sure you are. And I'm sure that the uh, the bike tours won't know what hit them <laughs> when Ed Chan puts his, puts his mind to something, right? <laughs> uh, yes. No, you're very kind, but it wasn't just me. It was the team. And I've got to give credit to the team. That it's the team that that does everything. And yes, it does need leadership. But at the end of the day, you know, the whole team needs to be working in their flow, working together, and you'll get that synergy that you need. And and that's the same message to everyone that's out there. You know, build these complementary teams. Don't build same teams. So I I hear people say, "Oh, I wish I could find someone just like me." And no, you need to find someone that complements you. And um, you know, the, the most efficient teams are in five, you know, even the elite, 
you know, elite military forces are, are set up in teams of five because that's the most efficient. So thank you for your kind words, Stuart. Um, but I just need to give credit to the rest of the people that are in WISE and, and Chananala that built Chananala and WISE. But thank you for your kind words. Of course, Ed. Thank you for your time. I, I know you're a very, very busy man. You've you've got, uh, uh, I'm sure you've got a peloton or, or get outside on the bike <laughs> later on today. <laughs> uh, yeah, so I've got, got another meeting on. So um, it's all working on the business, not uh, in the business. Yeah, so it's all good fun. Thank you for having me, Stuart. It's, it's been fantastic. Ed Chan, an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you found this discussion interesting, fun, you'll find lots more to help you run a successful accounting firm at Carbon Magazine. There are more than a thousand free resources there, including guides, articles, templates, webinars, and more. Just head to carbonhq.com resources. I'd also love it if you could leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know you like this session. We'll be able to keep bringing you more guests for you to learn from and get inspired by. Thanks for joining and see you in the next episode of the Accounting Leaders Podcast.